This podcast proudly brought to you by Moss Shot Shells. Old school is back in season. Experience superior shells when you go with Boss Shot Shells. Their premium, non-toxic bismuth shells knock birds down so hard that the old guys might just think they're shooting lead again. Make sure you check out Boss Shot Shells for your next purchase of shotgun shells. Hey guys, I'm Jordan Fromer. I believe in hunting hard, hunting smart, and having a fun time while doing it. And shooting limits? Well, that's just the icing on the cake. I revel in the journey just as much as the successes it brings. From ducks to dogs to decoys and guns, we'll be talking tactics, strategies, and what it takes to get the job done. Load up and take aim. This is the Duck Gun Podcast. What's going on, folks? Welcome to another podcast. Got Elliot with me. We're about to run the intro for the podcast. How you doing tonight, Elliot? I'm doing good. I am in the middle of duck excitement. You and I have been talking about planning trips and everything. And uh, did, did you see the video I posted on, um, I said I put it on my community tab. I think I put it on Fellowship of the Duck Guns, too. Did you happen to watch that? Which one was that specifically? It was just, it was a video I found today. Actually, I was looking more into our guest tonight, and I ran into um, a small YouTube channel, and these guys just had about three minutes of ducks cupping into Arkansas timber before shooting time. And that's all it was. There was no talking. It was just (laughs) piles of mallards at close range pouring into this this flooded timber. It was, it was a really, really cool video. I'm just so excited. I'm, I'm not, everyone sees, sees all this, uh, duck hunting stuff. And they're like duck depression, duck depression. I'm just excited. I don't have it. I'm not depressed at all. I'm just pumped. I feel like it's just right around the corner. I don't know why. Cause it's like 80 some days, but I do. <laughs> and me yeah, and time flies, honestly, this, like this time of year. Um, I mean it, it flies, but I, I, I can't say I'm on the same level as you as just pure excitement. I am and I'm not. At the same time, sometimes I am just like thinking about it. And we do so much stuff related to duck hunting, like creating the content and, uh, you know, the podcast and YouTube videos and talking about it and all that kind of stuff. It does help with the duck depression for sure. And hopefully it helps our listeners as well. But there's days where I'm like, man, I wish I could go out and hunt. (laughs) Well, and I don't have a nine to five right now. So it's hard for me to be depressed about anything. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, just try not to blow your phone up at work too much. <laughs> <laughs> I think the one thing that kind of staves off the depression for me this year is because I know I have so much I have to get done before duck season, like so so many things I'm working on um that I'm almost not ready for it to be here because I got to get that stuff done. Yeah. Yeah, Whether that's it's like true. projects at HTR or like my big personal project is is chief um, this off season, which that's going amazing. Um, but all that kind of stuff, I'm like, you know, but once I get all that in gear and ready to go, I'm going to be so ready for duck season. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we've got so much going on. We've got, uh, several big announcements, um, you know, that we're not going to talk about tonight coming up. Um, some for the podcast, some for YouTube, some for both. So all that, you know, all the things we've been planning and these big things we have going up just make me so excited. And then yeah. I just started, I finished my first video. So I'm, I'm, I think I've, I've told you this. I'm trying to do like 15 to 20 videos for the um, during waterfowl season. So I can have a hunt video on Monday, like a waterfowl, just discussion video on Wednesday and then another hunt on Friday. So I finished my first one today. Um, so I'm really getting into the, the meat of like filming those videos. And then we've got these things that are developing around us. And, and man, it's just left me excited, just feeling excited. Yeah. No, it's going to be great for sure. <laughs> so much going on. So stick around, everyone, because we have got some stuff cooking we're going to be talking about when we get these things all developed. We've got some cool stuff going on behind the scenes that um, we're going to be um, unveiling yeah. at some point, right? Yeah, for sure. And I can't wait to, uh, to tell everybody, let everybody know. And um, I'm sure everybody, uh, you know, it's just it's going to be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So let's hear about chief. Cause I've been following that through all year. And that's the great thing about social media that social media certainly has its negative aspects. Um, no doubt. But the great thing about it is like, you know, I saw you post on, um, what is the name that retriever, 
um, training thing and, and asking some questions on there. And then you're putting stuff on Instagram. So I'm able to, without even talk to you, just kind of following, you know, you and chief and what you're doing. And that's, that's social media at its best. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is pretty cool doing all that. And I wish like the hard part about it is like, um, with the dog training stuff, I just been trying to do Instagram stories. And so, um, honestly, it's kind of hard to do because you have your, uh, bumper in one hand or i'm like making sure chief doesn't break with one hand you got the the um e-collar in the other hand the bumper's already thrown and so i'm like i don't have any hands left for you know social media posts but i try to make you know a story every once in a while um because when i started doing the training one thing i said is you know i wanted everybody on instagram to keep me accountable um i'm gonna stick with this do this every day all the way through season and, and make chief into a stellar duck dog so um and the people who are following along also know, I think on the podcast I've said this as well, using the Retriever Trainer by Freddie King, following those videos. Um, and we're just plugging through them one after the other and until Chief gets proficient at it, and then we switch to the next video. So it's going really, really good. Um, I'm probably getting like triple the time out of Chief as I was when I started, um, just because I think he's, he's less confused. He's more... Uh, excited about it um what do you mean you triple know, the time? what do you mean triple the time what do you mean by like that? uh i would get maybe like six minutes out of him or something like that and then oh, okay, be like okay. and then you know you don't want to over kind of push a dog when they're not into it and make it a negative thing well like i go the whole 18 minutes and maybe uh we quit because i think he's getting a little too tired um and i don't want to have any negative response from it you know um but like on a cool day he'll, he'll make it into the end he won't even really be panting or anything like that and so um, you know, and I have so many more drills to kind of run because we just go hit up something we've already done and kind of refresh on it. And yeah, so honestly, it's going really good. I wish I would have done a system a long time ago and stuck to like an e-collar more, um, more regularly in the past. It kind of got lazy. Like, ah, it's not charged. So we'll go run out there and do the drill anyway. If I don't have the e-collar, I don't do it because I don't want to create any bad habits. So, yeah, 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 and that's the thing is the consistency that I'm going to do a better job with George than I do with Izzy, and it sounds like you're doing it now. It's just like the consistency of exactly what you're doing it and being in the focus of the plan. Yeah, and we do it. I mean, most of the time it's three times a day. Um, if not, it's two times. Um, but he still has off off days. But then like the next time, and we're doing it so frequently that you know maybe that night he has a bad night, and then the next morning he's killing it again. So it's just, you never know what's going to go on. But, yeah, it's going really good. Well, then do- dogs are athletes, and they're just like any other um, professional athlete or amateur athlete or whatever. You have your good days and your bad days. I remember Izzy, I can remember her, one of her worst hunts ever. It was um, about, let me think how long it was. It was seven, eight years ago. I guess she was three or four. And it was a teal opener. And she was just, <laughs> I mean, terrible. She's always been really good at marking. She couldn't mark anything. She just, her enthusiasm was low. It was like, she was awful. And even like the next couple hunts, she, she was bad too. And I, you know, I always get paranoid and be like, what is she just going to all of a sudden be a terrible dog? And then I don't know what clicked in, but she was back to doing a great job after that. And it was just such a terrible start to the season for her. But you know I mean? They just have their off days just like any other athlete does, you know? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, going good. Um, but we're ready for our guest now. So he's waiting in the wings for for us. But before before we get him on, just a little bit background background of him. He is the author of a book that's coming out, Grand Prairie Marsh. And I'm just going to read a quick se- section um, right out of the beginning of the book. And it's a pretty neat book all about Arkansas duck hunting. So here we go. Duck hunting in Arkansas is nothing short of phenomenal. There are places where one can hunt mallards and flooded timber, but not like the big ditch bottoms. There are places where you can shop for waterfowl gear, but not like Max Prairie Wings. There are places you can hunt ducks on public land, but not like uh, Bayo Meadow. Well, he'll correct us on the name of that. Um, There's no question the Chesapeake Bay has storied duck hunting history, as does the Central Valley of California and the southern coast of Louisiana, the plains of the Dakotas, and a handful of other regions. But the Grand Prairies of Arkansas holds a specific place in the memories of those who have been there and in the dreams of those who haven't. So, yeah, it's a really cool book. And without further ado, let's bring them on in here. 
But first, a quick word from our partners. Gunner's American-made dog boxes come with a lifetime warranty and the market's only CPS crash test certification. The guys over at Gunner Kennels have conducted major stress tests to show just how strong they really are, like applying 4,000 pounds of force, dropping a 630-pound hammer from 8 feet, and shooting it with a 12-gauge shotgun at 7 paces with no bullet penetration. Engineered for your dog and built for your peace of mind. Gunner doesn't cut any corners. Nothing comes close to the G1. Go to GunnerKennels.com and use code DuckGun10 at checkout for 10% off your next purchase. We'd also like to give a big thanks to our partners over at ShotCam. Now I've been using ShotCam for the last year and I can tell you right now it's a great tool for improving your shooting whether you're doing clays or live birds or just want to see some cool footage of your shots after the fact. Make sure to check out shotcam.com and use discount code DUCKGUN at checkout for $40 off. Hi, this is Killian Bailey from Bailey's Game Calls. I'm here to tell you about our duck, goose, and wood duck calls. We use 3D printing technology to revolutionize the industry. This new technology allows us to create calls with the same sound as wood, acrylic, or anything in between that's at a fraction of the price. Make sure to check out baileysgamecalls.com for your next game call. What's going on, folks? I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles. Got my co-host, Graybeard, Elliot from Freelance Duck Hunting alongside me, and our guest for tonight is Brent. How you doing tonight, Brent? I'm doing fantastic. How about yourself? We're doing great. Yeah, we're excited okay. to have you on here, and... Here we are in June talking all about waterfowl hunting and specifically a state that ne- neither Jordan and I have hunted. Neither of us have been to Arkansas. Neither of us have have um, had a chance to hunt. I can't tell you how many guests on here when you say what's your favorite type of hunting. It's Arkansas timber, Arkansas timber. And so neither of us have had to experience it all. So hopefully by the time we're done, at least Jordan and I will have a better feel for what it's like. Yeah. Well, and I think yeah. we can both safely yeah. say it's uh it's on our bucket list as well, um, but <laughs> like like I said, I'm sure um, we'll definitely have a better respect and understanding for it um, the more we hear about it from you. But to give the listeners a little bit of background on Brent, Brent Birch uh, is the author of his upcoming book, The Grand Prairie, um, and an Arkansas native, and om- I mean almost, I would say from, from looking at this book, um, a historian of Arkansas from start to finish. So I guess, um, you know, that's kind of like a brief overview of who you are, but go ahead and let people know who you are, what you got going on. Yeah, the, the book actually came out uh, right about duck season last year, um, about a two and a half year project that uh, I was lucky enough to work on. But, uh, you know, as far as my background goes, uh, I live in Little Rock, but I have spent um, an inordinate amount of hours on, you know, the historic Grand Prairie, which is the the famed region, uh, you know, the Stuttgart area extends north uh, to almost to Bald Knob and south to where the White and the Arkansas River meet, um, kind of at the southern, southeast corner of Arkansas, and have pretty much hunted every corner of it at some point. Uh, but uh, became fascinated with with the history of hunting, duck hunting, and and the sport itself at an early age, because I was lucky enough to, to hunt a historic club that my dad was a part of, and then have uh, just about done every kind of, of hunting you can do uh, in Arkansas, including the, the, of course, the famed Green Timber, which uh, unfortunately you guys haven't done it because it's, uh, it's something special, and, and uh, there's only so many places on the planet you can do that, and, and Arkansas is uh, without a doubt the best. Yeah, um, I you know I had always been told and heard all about Arkansas duck hunting, but the thing about the about um, the book that I really enjoyed is it taught me so much. It goes through, and I don't know how much you want to try to go through or, or how in depthly, but um, for me, just was how everything was formed and the flooded timber and the history of of rice production and the fact that they can plant rice because of the clay. I mean, there was you went really really specific in this book, and I I found it just just stuff I had. I, in fact, I didn't even have any idea like where the best duck hunting was in Arkansas, and and man, it, it goes through 
See, it starts out what, like in the 1800s with the Native Americans, and or even farther than that. It starts clear back to the first, um, I believe, Spanish that come, came through the area. So it is like an in-depth review of like how it all transpired through through the time. And man, it's a fascinating read. Yeah, it's you know I I've grown up here and, and hunted here my whole life, and I learned uh, a ton. Uh, so I, I don't think it's ever been. You know the the Grand Prairie is is known across the world of of duck hunting, but not at the the historical level that we went to in this book. And there's been some great books in the past that have, have covered bits and pieces of it. And there's been a couple of recent books that have done uh, more club focused, um, just really talking about some of the historic clubs. Uh, and we wanted to do something different with this effort and really explain how all this happened. And, and make people understand why this region, what has happened to make it draw the amount of ducks that it does, and then how that has transitioned into a, a true industry for the state, uh, you know, from a tourism aspect uh, and, and all of that. So it's been uh, an educational process for me in writing the book on a place I thought I knew a lot about and really I knew very little, uh, you know, hist- history-wise. One of the things that's so interesting about it is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like from reading the book that if things have, had gone a different way, you could have a much different duck hunting scenario in Arkansas where you didn't have the industry, it wasn't world-renowned, that it it could have just gone a different direction to where, you know, there wasn't a lot of ducks there. It definitely could have, uh, you know, because ducks were drawn here just by the, the confluences and, and if you the geography of Arkansas, the way that the Mississippi comes down the east border of the state. And then we have the White River and then the Arkansas River, and they all kind of come to a funnel at the southeast corner of the state. And there's all these tributaries that run off of that. Biomita is one of them. Uh, Mill Bio is a a feeder. LaGru Bio. um, And all those natural... uh, confluences of of water created flyways within the state so once the ducks got here they they followed these flyways and as as the state transitioned from being pretty wild and woolly into somebody figuring out that you could grow rice here uh, which led to a lot of clear cutting of trees and, and taking away a lot of this natural habitat and converting it into farmland well lo and behold that farmland uh, and, and rice and, and then subsequently soybeans and some other things created a, another whole food source for the ducks that were already coming here. So it just it created a, a true buffet uh, for the ducks. So they had every kind of habitat they possibly could need to survive during the winter months all happened in this, this segment of, of, of the state. So uh, yeah, it probably could have gone a lot different way. If they would have clear-cut all that timber and, and done something else with it and planted cotton, probably would have, uh, duck hunting probably would not have taken off like it has. But uh, somebody really smart figured out you could grow rice, and, and a lot of people figured out you could leave a lot of this timber in place that floods that the, that the mallard duck obviously loves. So, uh, yeah, probably could have gone a different direction at some point and, and didn't. Thank goodness. Yeah, and that part of the that part of the book I found it, it extremely intriguing too. Excuse me, my lab is barking in the background. Um, but and I don't remember the name of the man that really was the first one to pioneer the rice. That he decided he could he could get it done in Arkansas. Then he failed. Then he went down to Louisiana and worked on and and rice farm for a couple of years. He was just like such a determined individual. Like I know this can work. I know this can work and he gets it done and everyone else is kind of like, okay. And it just, boom, it takes off from there. Um, yeah. It was a guy, so that, he was actually not even an Arkansan. He was uh, from Ohio that had moved to Arkansas, but his name, yeah, his name was WH Fuller. He's, he's been given the credit for being the first rice uh, farmer, which was in the Carlisle area, which is a, from Stuttgart. That's a little bit Northwest. Um, uh, right in, in modern day, it's right on Interstate 40 that cuts through the state between Little Rock and Memphis. Uh, but yeah, he's he's the one that's credited with going to Louisiana and, and learning how to grow rice and then bringing it back and and figured out that the soil here uh, in this part of the state was perfect. Um, and so 
that led to a lot of uh, natural grass prairies. That's why it's called the Grand Prairie because it, 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 it was either woods, timber, or it was prairie grasslands, uh, which the book talks about how buffaloes used to roam this area and everything else. But uh, yeah, pretty fascinating that it was converted. Somebody figured out the soil was right for growing rice and then it's taken off. And of course, rice is a huge industry uh, in this state uh, and, and supply. I can't tell you how many bushels of rice around the world. So this is, I know you don't know the answer to this, but I'm curious as to your opinion. What would Arkansas waterfowl hunting be like without today without rice? Without It'd be rice? tough. It would be tough because a lot, uh, you know, a lot of the trees and, and timber that existed prior to that, obviously it's long gone. And once that goes, it takes a long time to get it back. And, uh you know, ducks probably would still come here in some degree because of the all the bottomlands, the food that's in the bottomlands between acorns and invertebrates and everything else that they go in there to feed on. But they can't get that that protein punch that they need, uh, like they can get from rice. And so, um, it it probably would would not it'd be a shadow of what it is now uh, if if that industry didn't take off. And what, what can you speak a little bit about the connection between the rice and the flooded green timber reservoirs? Because that's another thing I had no idea that there was such a deep-rooted connection between those two, and they kind of depend on each other in a way. If I'm if I'm accurate, nope, you 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 are you're very accurate because rice takes a ton of water to grow. Um, the fields before they are cut are pretty much left in standing water. Uh, until it's time to run that water off and, and cut that field. So uh, you get a dry year and where you're, you're waiting on rainfall to, to flood the rice, the, the rice that's growing, uh, the years it's dry, you don't, you don't have access to it. So these farmers figured out that they needed to build uh, reservoirs to hold water for years where it was dry. And so they levy up a, a low spot um, oftentimes that was was full of trees. It was it was area they couldn't farm, so they would levy it up and catch water from rain and runoff, and uh, use that and move water back and forth. They put water on the rice fields when they needed it, and they could pull it off and put it back in the reservoir when they needed to dry the fields out to get ready to to harvest. Lucky enough, they figured out that the ducks really liked it too. Uh, and that's kind of how all that was born. So these man-made green tree reservoirs uh, where they can manage water and water levels like you can't do on, on natural wild uh, bottomlands. Uh, you know, when you can keep water at ankle deep throughout a duck season where ducks have easy access to the food, uh, to the water depth that they like to, to hang out in, uh, you, you created a, an incredible attractant uh, to migrating ducks. And how do they, how do these living trees deal with um, the water and being flooded? How, how do they go about making sure that they're not killing off the trees in this process? Yeah, that, that's a great question because that's a big issue right now, uh, especially with, with the famed Biomita, uh, which is a publicly owned wildlife management area. They've had a hard time controlling the water, but um, the the biologists have figured out that you really cannot put water on those trees until they are finished uh, or they've gone dormant, which is typically around November, mid-November, uh, and sometimes even later than that if it's a warm year. So the trees, if they have water on them outside of their dormant times, it is, it is very, very tough on them. And we're, uh, we're seeing some pretty significant loss of the acorn producing trees in Biomita and some other places that are that are being replaced naturally by acorn producing trees that aren't good for waterfowl because uh, you can take a, a red oak that produces um, a small acorn that's that's uh, just right for a mallard to, to eat and you take another uh, type of oak tree that produces a big huge acorn um, and those tend to be a little more water tolerant 
well, those acorns aren't any good to a duck. They can't eat them. It's, they're way too big. I mean, they're the size of a golf ball. Hmm. Uh, so it's a, it is a huge ecological uh, effort going on to get this water management piece right. Now, private landowners have figured it out already, um, and, and they have an easier time controlling when they put the water on, and then as soon as duck season's over, they are dumping it uh, and getting it off those trees before they start their growing uh, season. And uh, the state is trying to figure that out to keep uh, keep uh, Biomita from from really suffering some some serious damage. And is is how do you say it, Biomita? <laughs> yeah, if if you if you read it or you weren't from here, you would probably say Biomito, by the way the boy yeah. is spelled. <laughs> but you will you will be instantly identified as someone not from here. Uh, if you don't say it correctly, but it is. It well, is Jordan on the intro data. was trying to read, was trying to read a <laughs> passage of the text and he had no idea how to say it. So <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. Glad you corrected it. Cause I definitely said it, uh, the latter way where it's, uh, you know, um, somebody from not from Arkansas. Right. Right. And if you notice in the book, we even have little blurbs in there, uh, their little lexicon pieces on how to pronounce some of these places because, I've heard uh, there's a city called Lone Oak, but it's not spelled like Lone, L-O-A-N-E, L-O-N-E-O-A-K. It's L-O-N-O-K-E. Well, I've heard people pronounce it Lenoki. Um, mm-hmm. So we have all <laughs> these little blurbs in the book about how to pronounce uh, these places. So uh, somebody not from here doesn't stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> so bio meat, meat, say it again. <laughs> Bio, Mita. Bio Mita. Bio Mita. Yep. That that's the most famous, um, the most famous section. Is that correct? Of as far as public public shooting grounds, then no question. Yes. Yeah. So it, now, is the water that goes in there is that water also used for rice as well, dually? Then no, no. Bio Mita is is fed uh, naturally, and now there there are farms that pull water out of it. Uh, through, through the use of a relift pump and can put pull water out of Biomita and dump it into their fields and then they can pull a gate and let it back in. But um, it's, it's not levied. There are parts in the wildlife management area that are levied and they can manage the water, but most of Biomita is natural. It's a natural tributary uh, that, uh, that flows from around a town called Jacksonville, which is not in the duck hunting area at all, all the way to where it meets the Arkansas River. Um, And and so that part is what goes right through the middle of the Grand Prairie. So most of that is not, is just natural runoff and they can't really control when it is and isn't flooded then? Uh, It's true. Yeah, that's, that's right. And that's the problem right now with Biomita. You know, obviously trees are growing, there's leaves on the trees and Biomita still has water in it because they can't get rid of it because we're, I'm sure you've seen on the national news, Arkansas is under some pretty tough flood conditions um, because of all the water they've let go from Oklahoma uh, out of the lakes that put it, dump it into the Arkansas River. And so when the Arkansas River backs up, it impacts Biomita. Um, and so it pushed all that water back up in there. And, and this is, I think, the third year in a row in the spring that Biomita's trees have had water standing on them. So it's a, it's a dangerous, slippery slope we're on uh, right now uh, that's, that's become a, a, a bigger and bigger issue every year. Because those trees can just die and just be done, right? Yeah, and once they're gone, I mean, you're looking at 30, 40 years before you would have trees in there like that again. And so... Wow. You know what does that do to the ducks? I mean, that's obviously a significant flyway. Where do those ducks go? Um, it, it's a it's a concerning point. So they they bring water in from the Arkansas River and then and then open the gate and let it. So they can basically flow water through it. Yes, yes, that's right. It's got a series okay. of it's got a series of gates in it that they can open okay. and close to catch water or let it go. But right now, when the water's so high, they can't let it go. It has nowhere gotcha. to go. Yeah, yeah we're, de- we're dealing with the same problems here in Kansas right now that our reservoirs, our marshes that we hunt are on the upside of reservoirs. Um, mm-hmm. And these reservoirs have so much water in them that our marshes are like 16 feet underwater. And right now, so silt's just depositing. 
just falling yeah. down right now. So, I mean, that can cause, you know, some of these shallow pools, you raise it eight, nine inches of silt, that can cause serious damage. So we're having some of the same issues um, to a certain extent as you guys are with holding this water. It's bad right now. It really is. It's uh, Mother Nature has been pretty tough here. So are there are there some public um, green timber pools that are public hunting and they um, use the water for rice as well, or is, are those two completely separate except on private? Those are those are typically separate. Uh, like I said, like I said, there are there are farmers that pull water out of Biomeda and pump into their fields, um, but uh, there's not really um, a whole lot of public. Uh, area like that that you could you could hunt um, so when they're sense. developing some of these other public areas other than bayou that um, are green timber res- reservoirs did did they start making those before duck hunting or w- if they weren't using that water for rice um, what made them decide to start levying those up yeah there we have several state-owned green tree reservoirs and they were all developed for primarily for duck hunting okay okay and they're kind of scattered out all through the state before the state um started making those type of of structures then the the reservoirs that were first formed were just strictly for holding water for rice then right that's right okay that's right okay and it seemed like they're kind of having to um, like a lot of this is just science that no one knew and, and still kind of seems like no one has a full grasp on it because no one had attempted to do this, this type of um, back and forth, the water between the rice. And I liked in the book how it talked about the science of it. And can you talk a little bit about how the nutrients as they drain these pools um, get sucked out and what damages that might cause? Yeah, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily take away the uh, the nutrients as far as the trees are concerned, but what it it does do, it does do a lot of root damage uh, because the, the the trees, you know, the the right kind of oak trees for ducks aren't uh, as tolerant to water. You know, like willows and and other things that you see that can grow in in. Uh, and we have tons of reservoirs like that in Arkansas too that are that are primarily willows and buckbrush that ducks bucks love, but they don't go in there to eat. They go in there to sit and loaf and get away from from everybody because usually those places are pretty woolly. Uh, but the the trees are when they're out of outside of that dormant season, which is coincides with duck season, uh, and they're trying to grow. They they just they're not built to do that with with water standing around them and so the the damage to the roots and the base of the tree it's pretty tough and you and and there's i don't know all the science behind it but you can even see damage up through the tree that's been stressed by water Uh, and they can tell they can go in and mark trees that that you know that tree's not going to make it another two years or that tree's not going to make it another five years uh, based on that water damage um are there, I know that there's like um, rice waterfowl hunting and then timber. Are there some guys that just focus more on the rice and then, and others love the timber or is it everyone just kind of like going to the rice when it's, when it's good for the rice or going to the timber? Um, it seems like two totally different styles of waterfowl hunting. Uh, definitely totally different. Uh, and there are certain days that one is better than the other. Uh, you know, you know, rainy, crappy, gray days, um, th- those are pretty tough in the timber. Ducks can see everything. There are no shadows. Uh, they're very skittish. Where in a rice field, you could be in a pit blind in the middle of a rice field on a rainy day and wear them out. Uh, now, sunny bluebird days are usually good for everybody. Um, the more of those you can get, the better. It doesn't matter whether you're in a rice field or, or in the woods. But... Um, you know, everybody has their preference. Uh, most people, you know, green timber duck hunting is also harder to come by. There's not as uh, much of it anymore uh, because people have converted, because you, you don't make any money off of a, a green tree reservoir. That ground's not worth as much unless you can kill ducks out of it. And then it's worth about anywhere from six to $10,000 an acre, which is a lot. 
Mm-hmm. Now, rice field, you can obviously you have production. If, you, if that field's in production, then you're making money off of the rice that's harvested or the soybeans or corn or whatever it is. But uh, there's there's more access to rice fields, but rice field hunting is tough. It's it's you got to know how to do it. It's not something where you just go out there and throw out a bunch of decoys and make it happen. Um, there's certain reasons why ducks go where they go, and when you see a uh, drive down the road and a, and a big rice farm, and you wonder why they sit in this field but not in that other field. It's it's hard to tell why, and it probably goes back to before all that land was cleared. Uh, and farm there was something about that area that's why ducks go there and they just continue to go there for generations i mean the, the i've hunted the same farm for over 35 years and and the ducks go to the same spots regardless of conditions because the, for some reason <laughs> that is a magnet to them and uh and i know other other farms and friends of mine it's the same it's the same way um and something so something about it from their point of view or their radar or whatever it is, that's where they're going. You could put decoys wherever you wanted to in that place. They're going to go to that spot. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to watch and, and see and, and really, when you hunt a place a long time, develop that knowledge that the ducks are going there. Whether, whether you want to hunt them there or not, that's, that's where they're going to be and that's where they're going to go. So, uh, but, you know, a lot of people love timber hunting. It's, it's much easier shooting. Um, you work, you work, typically work much bigger groups of ducks, um, rice field shooting, you know, hunting is a lot of singles and pairs and, you know, groups under six or eight. You can work some bigger groups, but in the woods, you can, you can work 5,000, 500,000 mallards, uh, in a group. And, wow. and when those things break the top of the trees and start landing all around you, it's, it's pretty amazing. And that, that's the pull to it, the visuals you get as them just dropping like rain through the trees, right? That's what everyone loves so much. Yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it is something to see. Uh, you know, it usually, you know, you'll work that big group over the top of the trees, and they'll make several swings and another swing and another swing, and then one or two will break the top of the trees, and then all of a sudden, here come the rest, and they just follow them and keep splashing and hitting the wire, and they'll land, they'll land close enough where you can reach out and grab them. Uh, especially very early, very early in the morning before the sun gets up and, you know, nobody can see, you can't, you can't tell whether you're shooting a hen or a drake and they can't see you. And all of a sudden they're, they're swimming between your legs. Uh, you know, when you light a big group like that. So, uh, you do do it one time and, and it's easy, real easy to get hooked. Well, you're going to have to have a disciplined dog in that scenario. Yep, yeah, uh, you definitely do because it's, it's, it's easy for them to bolt off that stand uh, when those things start hitting the water but uh, or start whining. Um, and, you know, I've, I've seen plenty of good dogs and plenty of bad dogs, and uh, that, that, that scenario is pretty tempting. I bet I'd make some people angry with you real quick if your dog is continually ruining every pass for you. Well, it's a good way not to get invited back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what would you say uh, in Arkansas, what is the percentage of um, public land areas where you can, you can hunt the, the flooded timber to the private? Oh, man, I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I, I will say we have a, uh, a lot of public hunting ground that is timber. The state has done a really good job. Uh, the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission deserves a lot of credit for a long time ago uh, securing those lands and and then managing them correctly to where the public can have access to hunt in the timber, because most of that is is only available to private clubs, and most of those private clubs they're extremely expensive. Um, and uh, so a, a regular old guy from Arkansas or from from Indiana, from Kansas, can come here and hunt. You know, go stand in the shin deep water in trees and and try to hunt mallards. Uh, and that's that doesn't happen like at, at at this level and this quality and this this opportunity anywhere else. Yeah, it's definitely uh, something that's pretty cool. Um, hearing that about Arkansas, um, Indiana definitely has some public land, and I'm very thankful for the public land we have. But it's just a you know, it's really cool to see some of those states kind of having the foresight um, to preserve um, some of that public land for generations to hunt. And kind of, uh, 
another segment of the book that I thought was interesting, um, talking about conservation. Um, it was Dr. Rex Hancock, and um, they talk about uh, how he kind of went um, on this, I, I don't know if you want to call it like a crusade or whatever, like a, to preserve a certain river. Do you want to go into a little bit of the history of that? Sure, sure, because that was a that was a big deal. Uh, Doctor Rex Hancock was a dentist from Stuttgart, and a and a, a crusade is is very accurate uh, because the uh, Corps of Engineers had made up their mind that they needed to uh, make the Cache River, which isn't even on the Grand Prairie; it's a little bit north of the Grand Prairie, uh, and Cache is spelled C A. C-H-E, but uh, very, very famous, great, phenomenal duck hunting uh, area, but they wanted to dredge that uh, river. It's a small river. Um, In a lot of states, they probably wouldn't consider that to be a river, but uh, it, uh, they wanted to make it a navigable waterway, which would have totally changed the dynamic of that uh, and, and ruined all the wildlife because it also has fantastic deer hunting. And Dr. Hancock uh, fought that tooth and nail to keep that from happening because it would have been uh, a, a, tra- a true tragedy uh, for that, um, that region and that area uh, to take away uh, just the, the, the amount of resources that, um, that were available to wildlife. And uh, he, he lobbied and used every political pull he could do uh, to keep that from happening and, and ended up being successful. And uh, I don't know, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hunters, and of course, however many ducks and deer and everything else, uh, owe him a lot because uh, of his willingness to stand up to that uh, that potential project that, that really had uh, so many, um, so much downside for the for wildlife and for those that enjoy it. Yeah. And there's a, there's one quote in particular in that section that I found uh, um, pretty cool. Um, it was by his wife and, and she says about him by God, if God <clears throat> had wanted it that way, y'all wanted the way y'all are doing, he would have put it that way uh, to begin with. So um, you can kind of see his thinking on all that. Um, you know, pretty much leave wild places wild, which I think is a really kind of important message for nowadays too. Um, you know, and, and conservation in general. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and he was right. Uh, and and like I said, we should all be thankful for it because the 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 Black Swamp Wildlife Management Area, and then there's also the Cash River Cash River National Wildlife Refuge, which is a federally managed stretch. That's all public hunting. Uh, there's some there's some private ground sprinkled in there, but uh, most of it is public land hunting. Uh, that is, like I said, is it, when it's right, it's it's as good as anywhere on the planet. And that could have all gone away if it wasn't for Dr. Hancock. The, um, this might be a little bit off, off of that topic. Um, is there any public rice hunting, flooded rice hunting in Arkansas, or is that all private? That's all private. Okay, and it's all those. So that hunting's all done out of a pit blind, pretty much uh, exclusively. Not not necessarily. A lot of it is. A lot of it are on. Uh, are you familiar with a skid blind? Skid blind uh, is um, you know a pit blind. You're at water's level. Uh, skid blind kind of sits up higher, and you can drag it behind a four wheeler and, and move it around in a field. It's on skids. Okay, uh, it's all brushed and and looks like it's part of the part of the rice uh, rice field you can also hunt them from coffin blinds um, little floating boats that you lay mm-hmm. in uh, that you can, you can camo up that's my favorite way to yeah. do it uh, because the ducks get so close uh, and then you got blinds built in the sides of levees uh, as well so um, there's there's several different ways to get at them the hide if they open that up public i mean the hide in those is extremely difficult because it's just wide open and just from what i've seen on videos rice doesn't pr- pr- provide a lot of <laughs> cover it doesn't seem no in a lot of farmers now it's changed over the years a lot of farmers now will as soon as they cut 
the rice. They'll burn all the left, you know, the the rice straw that's left behind by the combine, which completes, I mean, makes it completely bald. Um, so it's difficult to hide mm-hmm. in there. Some will leave patches. So it just looks like a, a little pond in. or a lake, basically. Yeah, it, and it, it'll look that way. Now ducks don't mind it because they they can see. Uh, you know, when they land in rice straw, they don't know if there's a coyote hiding there or or uh, some other critter waiting to jump them. Where when all the rice straw is gone, they can see everything, and so they can they'll use those fields. But the problem is, mm-hmm. you can't hide to hunt them. And so uh, you know, there's a lot of different strategies and ways to ways to do all that. But um, yeah, you got to be really you got to be really covered up in a on a rice field hunt. That's why pit blinds are so popular because you can you can hide a lot of people um, effectively uh, because everybody's, you know, underneath the roof of that thing at water's level. Yeah. I had some, some buddies that went out there um, on a guided snow goose hunt in Arkansas and uh, they'd never been out there. Um, and so all they'd hunted for fields before and their, their guide was going to have them out in rice fields was corn fields. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this took all their kind of normal field hunting, stuff with them and um you know the the guide was providing blinds and all that stuff well they didn't bring waders with them because they didn't realize um how wet a rice field would be (laughs) and so they just had you know regular pants and all that kind of stuff so needless to say they were pretty cold and miserable (laughs) through that (laughs) through that yeah it's uh it could be tough it could be a tough style of hunting uh because you can you can you can wallow around in the mud and and uh get all your gear dirty and wet uh, timber hunting is is kind of Cadillac hunting, uh, you know, because you just you wait out there in in less than knee deep water and stand beside a tree. And um, only trick is if you, you you catch a snag or a dead limb under underneath the water's level and you go face first into the into the water. That's about <laughs> the only downside to timber hunting. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, being in Kansas in the Midwest, and I will say these are not my opinions. I've never been in the timber at all, but I know that guys that love hunting the timber and do a lot of it can be a little bit vocal about how wonderful they have it. And I've heard more than one um, prairie waterfowl hunters that will say things like, well, tell you what, if you take those timber hunters and you bring them out here, they're not going to shoot a duck because they have no clue how to get hidden. (laughs) There's some truth to that. It's a whole different deal when you get out or like, like with the rice or public grounds, like you go to somewhere like Cheyenne Bottoms or or somewhere where there's no trees and no cover, man. Out here, we have to work our tails off to get covered. When you take those trees away and you don't have, um, you know, any blinds and you've got to do it yourself, It especially late season in Mallards, it is a chore to, to get them in. Sure, yeah. Well, uh, the, the flip side of that is uh, – our late season mallards are extremely difficult to hunt um, because by the time they get here and it's late January, they've been called at and shot at, seen every decoy spread, every robo duck, every good caller, bad caller, uh, everything in the book. They've seen it by the time they get to the end of January. They've been seeing it since September in Canada and they get, they get pretty smart, uh, and so the the good hunts, the later in the year, uh, the conditions got to be just right uh, to really make it happen, because um, it gets tough down here. But uh, you're right, yeah. timber, a lot of timber hunters, uh, you know, like to watch the ducks. So that, I mean, they're they're staring at them, face sticking out uh, behind a tree. Uh, don't have the same appreciation for having to hide like uh, like you're talking about. But on the flip side, if like, you know, we've got all the equipment we would need. Um, we've got surface drives, we've got layout boats, but we've never even thought about going to Arkansas because you just, you know, cut me loose at flooded timber. And I mean, I've never done that. I don't know what to look for. I don't know what conditions to look for. I mean, other than just trying to vis- visually see ducks going down, my knowledge base is it would take me quite a while, I would assume, to figure it out just because it's nothing like I've ever done. It would. There, there's definitely some nuances to it. Uh, timber hunting, uh, they're going to look, they're going to look for little little holes in the canopy, uh, especially the later the season goes on. You know, early in the season they'll hit the bigger holes, uh, and you'll see on private ground you'll see man-made holes cut. 
in the in, in November, December, the ducks will fill it up. But in January, you got to get off those holes and find little natural breaks in the timber because the ducks get smart. They figure out that if I go down in that big open hole, I'm going to get shot. Uh, so they start getting smarter, and so you got to you got to move off the holes and hunt hunt those little natural openings in the canopy. But um, you know, they, they it's the same thing I was talking about earlier with with the fields and why they go to certain spots. It's the same thing in those woods. Now you you can you can pull them down if you can call them. Uh, you can pull them down. Um, it's just uh, you know you got to have the right right conditions, right setup. You get a cold, like I said, a gray day. That's going to be a tough day in the woods uh, just because uh, they, they can see so well um, that uh, it doesn't matter how well you're hidden, they're still going to be spooky. In a sunny day, uh, the decoys stick out a lot more. The shadows, uh, you can hide in the shadows and, and, the, and the ducks, uh, you can get the, if you, you get the right setup with the right wind and put the sun in their eyes where they have to, to come in, um, you know, you could. You don't even have to stand behind a tree. You can stand out in the middle, middle of the uh, patch of trees that your everybody's hidden in, and and shoot them. So, it it really just depends. But it's definitely it's definitely different. It's it's not it's not difficult. The hard part about what it would be for somebody that's never been here before and and tried to go on the public ground is is probably navigating their way um, through mm-hmm. the woods, and then and then a lot of it's the etiquette of how all that works. Um, you know, there's uh, you know, there's some gentleman uh, gentleman rules as to how close you set up to someone, and and uh, who you know, in some in some places in Arkansas, there's there's locals that think that that, that hole's theirs despite it being state-owned property. Uh, so you got to work through some of those nuances. Uh, you definitely will find some bullies uh, out there in the woods. Uh, but you also find a ton of really nice people that if you know the two of y'all showed up and hunted and you you look like you weren't quite sure I, I guarantee you there'd be somebody out there in those woods that would would uh especially if they've been doing pretty well to offer you to to, to join them uh, because uh, there's plenty of nice people southern hospitality kind of thing so generally speaking the local hunters are fairly accommodating to out-of-staters uh it's man it's it's 50 50 um yeah it, it really is unfortunately um they see it that it's it's this is for arkansans not anybody else and that's that's not really the the thing just like it's you know you go to a baseball game in st louis uh you know that's yeah the they're the cardinals but i can be a fan of the cardinals and go see them uh up there it's it's kind of the same thing so um uh, you 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 can run into all types, uh, unfortunately, and, and some of them are are pretty angry that they get squeezed out of hunting opportunities or the woods are overcrowded because so many people from out of state are here, and then you got others that are that are accommodating and and just fine, more the merrier, that kind of thing. Yeah, it seems like that um, Arkansas's um, wildlife and parks department seems to be kind of cutting edge. You're always hearing news about what they're thinking about. Um, like for example, I heard they were thinking about outlying um, surface drive motors, and that was a big talk in Kansas. Are they going to do this? And and uh, they ended up not doing it. But it just seems like there's always something coming out of Arkansas. Is what? Or I also heard that maybe they were going to limit out-of-state hunters to certain weekends. Um, it just seems like they're real cutting edge when it comes to looking at different ways of going about regulations. Yeah, and, but they have to be. Uh, there's a there's a crazy amount of pressure put on uh the ducks when they're here um just because so many people residents hunt them and so many people come from out of state to hunt them uh and duck hunting has become so popular um that uh, they really have to be on top of all this to keep it from just getting totally out of control i i don't know if y'all have heard of the the boat races that used to happen in the public hunting grounds yes yes. those are pretty famous everybody's kind of seen those videos of just crazy behavior to get to a duck hole before someone else. I don't want any part of any of that. Oh, it's been, it was bananas. Well, they, they've resolved all that. Um, and, but it took them a long time to get real serious about it, but they, they fixed that. But the, yeah, the surface drive motors, uh, you know, the, you know, some people say they make so much noise that once they start, people start moving around because 
you know, it's not necessarily when everybody's leaving the woods, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning. It's people that hunt for 30 minutes in one spot and decide that's not the right spot and they move again. And so they're motoring through the woods during prime hunting time with a loud surface drive motor. So, but you got others say that they're not that loud. Those are modified boats. And, and so that argument has gone round and round. And, and they already have implemented the what weekends or what days out-of-state hunters can be here. Oh, yeah. did they? I didn't realize yeah. they they pushed they that through. They actually uh, that started last year. Okay, I believe so. Uh, it's an all all an effort to manage the sport before it becomes um, so unruly that nobody wants to do it. Um, and and although I personally think we could probably benefit from from some dropping out of the sport to to put a little less pressure on the ducks. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't know that that's going to happen until maybe we have several years in a row, like last season, last season was pretty tough. Um, and the season mm-hmm. before wasn't that good either. Um, and so naturally that'll drive some people out of sport because uh, they're kind of fringe participants anyway. They do it, uh, for different reasons than maybe others. But, um, you know, they're just, we're, we, last year was an all time high uh limber licenses sold duck stamps sold so got a lot of people hunting uh hunting ducks and and that kind of pressure on them it, that's going to impact the the quality of the hunting as much as the weather and the the habitat absolutely well awesome. jordan what do you think about uh lightning round yeah i think uh this is probably a great time to jump into the lightning round um lightning round is quick questions quick answers and just uh, a good way for us to learn a little bit more about you as a duck Okay, hunter. sure. All righty. What kind of gun do you shoot? Remington 870. And what's your dream gun? Uh, I'd like to get an A400. Oh, nice. Well, it's no A5, but I'll, I'll give you a pass. <laughs> well, I've got the A300. <laughs> ah, yeah, see, my, my son does too. Actually, I restored my grandfather's 1952 two a5 and have turned it into a pretty sweet little duck gun wow awesome so yeah that's uh that's where i get my love of the a5 so um my grandpa's a5 is uh what he gave me and it got me into duck hunting so yep sweet gun it's pretty neat little gun yep yep and what kind of ammo do you shoot i shoot heavy steel And uh, what size shot for ducks? Twos. And uh, three inch or three and a half? Three and a half. All right. Um, face paint or face mask? Neither. Neither. By the time they okay. see, by the time they see me, it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> So you're typically blind hunting, I would assume. Uh, yeah, mostly out of coffin blinds, or I also uh, yeah. hunt speckle bellies pretty hard, and and that's done out of you know little layout blinds. So I'm pretty covered up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. Um, on a day when you're having a tough day, do you pull the mojo or make other adjustments? Never use one. Never use no. Nope. Totally against those things. Just, okay. So is that a jerk string for you? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've got a few battery-powered shakers, you know, that wobble and do all that stuff. But, uh, yeah, no robos, no mojos. Are you against them because you're a traditionalist or because you don't feel like they don't work anymore? Bo- both. Okay. And, you know, it was interesting in, in the book how um, when you were talking to different clubs and a lot of them felt very strongly – about the no um, robo ducks yeah it's um you know it is a traditionalist thing just the 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 process of of those things and of course when they first came out they were incredibly effective now it's Mm -hmm. i don't i don't think there's a i haven't probably hunted i haven't personally hunted over one in probably 10 years because um I think they lost some of their effectiveness and they're, they're kind of a pain to drag around. And, and so I was like, I just, yeah. I mean, we, we killed them before. We'll just go back to that. And so, uh, at our, at, at both of our clubs, we don't use either, both the clubs I'm in, we don't use them 
at all. So, but I go to other places, and they use them, and and it, and for them it works. It just personal preference. I'd I'd rather just not mess with it. I'd say that's the trend. It's trending that direction. Either you have the guys that are putting out thirty five plus those big vortexes, <laughs> or you have the traditionalists. It's like it's really becoming polarized. It, it seems like. Yeah, and and where where somebody really needs to to do something about it is in Canada and the Dakotas because they are, uh, and this is coming, this isn't personal opinion, this is from biologists I've talked to all across the country in some conversations about why our duck season is not as good as it used to be. Um, and a big part of it, big part of last year, according to these, these people that are, you know, know all the science behind it, the hatch was pretty poor. So the young ducks were wiped out in Canada in the Dakotas, Montana, uh, by the, because of the effectiveness of the of the mojos and the you know, rope, spinning wing decoys, whatever you want to call them, uh, because they they don't know any better, and so uh, the young ducks are wiped out, and the ducks that make their way south and far enough south to Arkansas, those are all old, experienced, wise ducks, and um, it's having a real impact on it could have some impact long term on some of our populations uh, as as those young ducks they never get to really um, expand on their uh li- or their lifespan never never gets very far because of the effectiveness of those things in that part of the world um, i mean you've seen yeah, most sure of that field hunting i would assume sure but i mean everybody's yeah. seen videos in, in canada and i've done it i've gone to saskatchewan and it's it's ridiculous I mean, the ducks will be the farthest little speck in the sky, and and you flick that thing on, and all of a sudden they're they're trying to land on top of it. Uh, you don't have to call. You don't have to. You got five decoys out there, um, and so it's 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 got some impact. And and I would like as many people that now that travel up there to go hunt. I would like to see some kind of throttling back on some of that uh, to where the ducks have a chance. Hmm. It's interesting. Interesting. Uh, I've not heard anyone bring that up. That's interesting. We'll have to talk. We're having, I don't know if you know who John Debney is. He's the, I believe the vice president of Delta and he's up there in North Dakota and we're having him on in a couple weeks. We'll have to talk to him about yeah. that, Jordan, for sure. Yeah, for sure. That's interesting. Um, next question on lightning round, a little bit of a longer one, but um, if you don't mind, go ahead and tell us about your most memorable hunt. Most memorable hunt. Oh, man, I got a bunch of them, but um, probably the one that, that I just thought was the coolest. Uh, I grew up hunting uh, when I was in my teens and early 20s in uh, at, a, a, at a famous lodge, Crockett's Bluff Hunting Lodge, uh, which if, you, if you've ever seen the movie Mud with Matthew McConaughey, a lot of that was filmed at this particular place. But um, we hunted a big river lake off the White River. Uh, it's called Round Pond, um, and this was a spot, big, huge blind, could hunt about 20 people that was on the in the tree line on this river lake, and we, you got in a boat and motored up the river to the, to the, uh, to a little dock, and then you walked up a, a plank board walkway and got into a flat bottom to motor out to where this, to this lake, to this blind. Well, it was like 15 degrees, so everything was frozen completely frozen the river had even chunks of ice in it so we motor up the white river and we have to ride in a in a tractor they also had a tractor in these woods so when the water's down you can get to the blind so we rode out there breaking ice the whole way and the lake was frozen so we couldn't hunt there so we knew there was a uh, waterway a, 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 a spot that was probably a beaver run that had running water in it well the running water kept the kept that particular area open. So I think I'm pretty sure if my memory is right, we had like 14, 15 hunters and I, I believe we limited out in less than 45 minutes uh, because that was, oh that was the only open water in that, in like that whole, all like significant area of the white river uh, bottoms, uh, this, this particular area. So every duck there, I mean, you couldn't load your gun fast enough as soon as you would, you, a group would come in and you'd shoot and we'd go pick them up. 
you couldn't get your gun loaded fast enough before the next group was coming in because they, they couldn't find open water anywhere. It was unbelievable, and, and the woods were full of snow. The trees were all full of snow, so it was an unbelievable, picturesque uh, look to it, but uh, just an in- incredible hunt. Never, I've never seen ducks. Uh, it looked like a beehive. Um, and, and, of course, we were, we were done so fast you didn't really get to enjoy it. Uh, but it was so cold. That's that, the problem with those banger hunts like that <laughs> is that they just go so quick. Yeah, but it was so cold. Nobody wanted to be out there any longer. It was it was pretty tough conditions. But uh, just just the scenery, the backdrop of the the wood, you know, the, the woods covered in snow. Uh, everything was on ice except the little area we were hunting, and just had an unbelievable hunt. Awesome. That's a, that does sound like a good one. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right, well, um, Brent, go ahead and let people know where they can find uh, your book and let people know uh, anywhere else on the Internet where you can be found. Yeah, they, uh, the best bet on the book is, is uh, ArkansasGrandPrairie.com, which has uh, got the three different versions. There's a collector's edition, which is a, a wood, I mean, a, a kind of a cloth covered uh, with a foil stamp imprint. With a, it's got a sleeve case that it goes in, really nice high-end deal and then we've got a, a hardcover version and then a softcover version and the hard and the softcover version actually have and I don't even know if you guys noticed this when you when you looked at the book if you look at the cover and you look within the trees and the ducks and the water the names of uh, some famous places are, are hidden in the in the drawing um, and so if you look at it real close you'll see uh, some of the famous clubs uh, on the Grand Prairie, uh, hidden in those uh, limbs and and waterline and everything else. And Philip Crow, who's a who's a famed wildlife artist from Tennessee, but he's done a lot of work in Arkansas, did this cover for us, uh, custom, um, specifically for the book. Uh, kind of took a kind of took a, a an idea that I had and and ran with it and just created an incredible cover. So um, that's the best place to find it. ArkansasGrandPrairie.com. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing your knowledge with us. Really, really interesting topic. Getting to learn more about that. And guys, make sure to check out this book. Um, it is a really cool uh, historical book on the hunting in Arkansas. So, uh, without, I guess there's uh, nothing else we got for you guys tonight. Um, but again, we just appreciate you coming on. I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles. Elliot from Freelance Duck Hunting. And Brent Birch, and we'll see you guys next time.